So um, now the paper. Let's talk about the paper. Um, we have this paper due for uh, for when? Let me check it out again. The twelfth, I guess. The twelfth. The twelfth of March, and I put uh, the topics online on the Moodle page yesterday evening, quite late actually, uh, in order to discuss them today. The paper, the paper last time I had asked you, but probably not, I hadn't explained explained myself clearly enough. Um, which is not implausible given my communication situation in, in a foreign language. Um, I wished you to <coughs> discuss the, the sources last time and to build up your, your discourse around the sources. Well, I will restate this point this time, and all, even the topics that I'm giving are based on the sources. So the five topics I've chosen have, are each one centered on one specific long source. I guess that uh, having to do, you know, what a scientific way to approach antiquity is to start from the sources and the ancient evidence, textual or archaeological, and build up a discourse on this. The way we did it in the first part of the class sounds sometimes a little bit fake, because when you are, have a book like Futrell, you have the discourse that Futrell introduces, and then the sources are brought in as a sort of anthology in little pieces to, to provide examples of what he's saying. While the real way, the scientific way when you do some research to state something about the classical antiquity is examining a large span of sources and finding yourself what elements can be useful, which cannot be done with an anthology. But this time, in the second part of the class, we have read not that much, possibly, but whole uh, unabridged sources. We have read all whole works, not very long, maybe, but, you know, the elegy from Ovid, the eclogue from Calpurnius Siculus, in the infutral, there are parts about uh, the, the, mar the martyrs, the Christian martyrs, which are pretty long, like the, the martyr of St. Polycarp and the Passio Perpetuae, so-called, so the, the sufferings of uh, St. Perpetua and Felicitas. Well, these are long narrations that can be considered uh, self-sufficient narratives, and uh, also we're reading whole, a whole comedy of Plotus. So I thought that we could build a discourse around those sources. What will be strongly recommended and definitely required is that you quote passages of those sources that you find relevant to your discourse, and you discuss this source. So um, forever, for, forever. <laughs> for instance, uh, the Acts of the Martyrs. Let's go over the first trace, and let's discuss them shortly, one by one. Let me zoom a little bit. Okay. Now, commenting on the ancient sources. Commenting on the ancient sources reported in Futrell, and I'm talking about these long narratives in particular, so you can cut and paste whatever it's important to you, so you can choose, pick up within the source, within this narrative, what you feel is important for your own discourse. Uh, Commenting on the ancient sources reported in Futrell, discuss the nature of the conflict between the imperial government of ancient Rome and the early Christians, as well as the textual strategies that the first Christian writers adopt to represent the nature of this conflict themselves and the persecutors. So, I don't ask you to summarize what Futrell says and what Gladiators and Caesar says about the conflict between empire and Christians. We know it. We, you have the book in front of you. This is no original work at all. What I ask you is to read and choose one or both of those long narrations, and if you want also other Christian sources, 
and find in their narrative, in the way that the, 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 the execution of St. Polycarp is narrated, elements that support your discourse on the, the way the Christians represent themselves as heroes, etc., non-violent heroes, I would say, the way they represent the empire and its uh, dying, corrupt structure from their point of view, the way they represent the conflict as an unjust conflict where they, they are persecuted unrightly by people who hate justice, who hate God, etc. That would be awesome, uh, excuse me if I talk, uh, if I use this uh, LA talk, but that's the way I talk every day. That would be very, very impressive. If you could compare what Pliny the Younger says, for instance, about Christians. Do you remember that passage? Pliny the Younger is uh, an imperial administration, administrator and rise to Trajan telling him about the Christian issue he, sa he has. He says, I don't know how to deal with this. What should I do with those people? So he gives us the Roman point of view. But what is really important is that you quote and refer to the ancient sources and discuss the ancient source and don't summarize the material in general. This is what this paper is about. Um, there is something very important that we said about the Christians, and this is what I would uh, say about it. But you are very, very welcome to create any original thought of, your, of yourselves, any, any point of view which belongs to you. But I think that they are inverting the strategy. The Romans are basically humiliating them and trying to teach them because they are enemies of the Christians are enemies of humanity so the Romans are trying to convert those atheists with a public humiliation and killing but the Christians present those executions in the Acta Martyrum the Acts of the Martyrs as glorious testimonies of coherence consistency heroism and they respond to violence with non-violence. They respond to, to... They are in the arena. And those non-fighting criminals present themselves as the new gladiators who fight, who fight not with the weapons, but with their truth, with their endurance of threaten, threatening. And while the, the Roman governor is trying to indoctrinate them, they actually indoctrinate the governor because they tell him that he's wrong and they are right, and they show to the whole audience that they write with their courage. I'm not saying this is right, I'm not saying this is wrong, I'm saying this is the strategy with which not the Christians themselves, bless you, but the Christian writers present the executions, you know what I'm saying? It's a textual strategy, you invert a humiliation in a victory. From the victim you present yourself as the fighter. And this is one of the aspects you could, but what's important is that you anchor this discourse on the text. The second uh, okay, questions now or later about this. The second prompt is Calpurnius Siclus, Eclogue 7. Discuss the elements that, in the seventh Eclogue, point to the Roman self-presentation as a urban culture. To the first, to the proud Roman society, to the proud, to the pride. This is the type answer. To the pride of Roman society for its own power and technology, and third, to the representation of the imperial figure. You remember this is an artificial nature as opposed to the real wild nature the shepherd comes from. But they're very proud of the fact that the imperial machine can build up this artificial world made up with their own technology, which is a wonder. Now, that's what they say. You could, you could follow the ironic uh, interpretation of the eclogue. Although I don't agree if you argument this fully, I feel that 
there is some sort of involuntary uh, irony, maybe, you can just interpret this, this, um, this eclogue as you want. So I don't want you to write about the Venationes, simply. I want to say, you to tell me how this specific sort of show and Venatio works and how the depiction of this thing works in that poem. But it tells us many things about the Roman self-conception as a, a self-conception as a very uh, advanced uh, civilization that triumphs over nature, creating a better nation, a better nature. Um, the representation of the imperial how of the imperial figure. How does the emperor show up in the end of this elegy? Do you remember that? Sorry? In the appearance of a god. He what's the relationship between, between this figure and the people? So it may seem that this approach is lame because we're not talking about actual archaeological evidence, but we're talking about a poem of a of a poet who's actually flattering the emperor, no? So he's presenting the emperor as a god. What does he this tell us about the real reality. Of course, he's not a god, but this is not the point. What is actually important is how the emperor presents himself and is presented by propaganda, if you want propaganda poems. Um, what's the self-representation of the society as opposed to the emperor? If you remember, this, the shepherd sits in a high place, in a bad seat, because it's poor. It doesn't. So we have this. Um, we have this sort of. Uh, exaggerated, surreal, unreal representation of the emperor, which tells us very much about what the role of the emperor as a divinized figure would be at that time. Also, his identification with Mars and Apollo are interesting as well. Um, of course, using a comment, a commentary, which you can easily find in YRL about this, about this eclogue, would be very appropriate. If you want to email me about, uh, about this, I can suggest you something to use as well. Uh, Ovid Amores 3.2, number three. Starting from Ovid's description of, of his day at the games, discuss, discuss the elements present in the poem that shed light on the organizational details and the general atmosphere and meaning of the chariot races in Rome. So it's not about the chariot races alone. It's about how this poem tells us something about the chariot races. This is one of the trickiest ones, but I think it's interesting because you have to, to dig uh, with, uh, within this poem what can be useful to describe the chariot races. It's not accurate historically, maybe. Well, the point of Ovid is not describing how the chariot races would go, would look like. His point is describing how, how he is courting this woman, actually. This is what he cares about. But he mirrors his own chase of the woman with the chariot race in an interesting way. And he gives us traces about the reality, about the, the actual mm, organization, no? how, the, how uh, the, 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 the race is started and then it's stopped and started again, for instance, and how the factions, factiones, used to work, etc., etc. So try to find the elements that point to the historical reality, but also build up a discourse about how a real Roman but with his eyes, eyes we see the, with how we see this reality through the eyes of a real Roman in everyday life. This, is, I think, this is, I think is the way to make it interesting. By the way, I listened to my voice to register the last lesson. Well, I started off this course speaking like like this, and then I tried to slow down, and now I realize that I'm quick speeding up again. So I will try to speak slowly again to pay attention to this. Um, Four, Greek sport in Rome. Uh, quoting and discussing closely the ancient sources reported in Futrell, show the issues related 
to the introduction of Greek athletics in Rome in relation to Roman cultural identity and to the problematic relation with Greek culture. As you know, athletics in Rome pose a question about Roman identity and uh, introduction of Greek culture. In this one, apparently, I didn't, I didn't talk about the sources, but just because I, I forgot to, wrote down, to write it down. Please use as many sources as you can in this prompt as well. All of them are, built, are meant to be built about around the sources. So we, this is about, yes, about this historical, this cultural matter, you know, Roman versus Greek, and athletics in general. The fourth one is about Plotus. I think the, the, four, the, the fifth one is about Plotus. I think the, about, for Plotus we have more to discuss because we've read the whole comedy. And uh, in this fifth one, it will definitely require that you quote massive uh, portions of the text. And you have an introduction by Siegel, and you have uh, Duckworth, which is an introduction to the whole uh, Roman theater. So you have enough material. So examining Plotus' Bargard soldier, find and discuss the elements that relates to the Roman ancient Senate conventions and to the characteristics of, uh, I don't know, art, uh, the, the characteristics of the genre of the Pagliata comedy in Republican Rome. So let's go in order. The Pagliata comedy is what? The Pagliata, you remember that? It was in Duckworth, I guess. Okay, we have many types, sub-genres, of, uh, of comedy in Rome. One of them is the Pagliata, which is the one that Plotus basically writes, the ones that we have of him. Uh, the Pagliata is the comedy which is set in Greece, with Greek characters. It's comedy set in Greece. We had the Togata comedy. The toga is the garment of the Roman citizens. And so the Togata had Roman characters. The Pagliata is the, the comedy we are reading. So we, we are basically, I'm basically talking about this I wouldn't say the, the standard one, but the specific form of comedy we have been reading example of. So Greek setting, Greek characters, uh, but Roman, so Roman language laden. So the genre of the Pagliata comedy. We know it from Duckworth, but I don't want you to summarize what Duckworth says. I want you to discuss the, the, um, the comedy. Example, just one example. Duckworth definitely discusses the fact that the setting is Greek, and this poses cultural problems as well, because the mentality of those Greeks is not the Roman mentality. They don't always act as dignified Roman citizens. The, if they acted as dignified Roman citizens, that wouldn't be funny. On the other side, they have to do ridiculous things. They have to chase after women. If uh, they have to, to, to behave in a corrupt way, and that's why the moralists always attack theater and comedy. But a good way to escape the problem, the issue, is that we set everything in Greece. And those people who are, who are acting that way are not Romans, are Greek. If we want to build up a discourse about this matter, one good way to do it, like we're trying to do today, is we choose a passage. For instance, when Periplectomenos, the old good neighborhood, the one that helps the servant, okay, this, this guy discusses with the young lover for a long while, whether it's good or not to get married. Do you remember that? The young, la giovane, the young lover, defends marriage against the old man. But the old man um, proposes, argu makes arguments which are not completely fitting the Roman mentality. Because in the Roman mentality, you had to get married to get to get to be to have children, 
and to fit into some sort of paradigm, or cultural paradigm. So there is some <coughs> discussion going on, which has comic aspects, and many misogynists, how do you say, misogynia? Misogynous, misogynistic, many misogynistic aspects, um, which are supposed to be funny to the ancient audience, which are not politically correct for us. But uh, then again, we, this old person can propose a point of view which is not coherent with the Roman mentality, and still be praised as a good guy because he's Greek on the other side. I wouldn't see an old Roman citizen defending uh, his, uh, his, his, cho his choice of not having children at all. I can see something like this in Propertius, which is definitely not politically correct uh, when he refuses to have children, to give uh, children to the state. Um, well, this is a way to discuss this, this, uh, this topic. Um, if you're discussing the role of the servant, quote passages where the servant is boasting that he is the one who makes up the comedy, okay? And et cetera, et cetera. This is what, oh, even when you're saying that the, the, the audience was sitting, there is a part as we, that we discussed last time in the prologue where the servant says, please, if you don't want to hear, stand up and give your place to somebody who wants to sit down. This, and you, so you can quote this passage saying verse 20 to 22, all right? So with a... With a with a, with a coherent, uh, consistent uh, system of quotations. It took quite long. Tell me, Kelly. Look, it's up to you. It's up to you. You can choose to fly low and just talk about how the comedies were represented, how many actors, women, servants, the characters, the characters, uh, and so or people were sitting, or... Um, or the setting, etc. This is something which uh, is more bound to reality. Or you can create a more theoretical discourse and say, yes, really, how the Greek culture interacts with the Roman thought, how Clodus intervenes on his sources, because he probably introduces scenes which were not in the original, just to create an Atellana-like Atellan -like sort of, uh, of uh, comic, no? Well, in both cases, the, the only limit is, it, is that it should be about five pages. How many conventions? It's up to you. What sort of conventions? What sort of characteristics of the genre? It's up to you as well. So, other questions? I just wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page, because paper one was uh, very diverse. You know, some papers looked very different from the others, no sources, for instance. So I wanted to make sure that it didn't happen the second time again. OK, let's move on. Oh, yeah, the deadline. One little thing is that the deadline is basically the day of the class, and it's at 11 AM. This is the penultimate class. So one hour before we have the class. You can submit it and come to class. I don't know if you do it a little earlier, it's better. Please, this time I will ask you to turn in a printed copy of it as well. So you can turn the printed copy in on Wednesday in class and submit it via turn it in one hour before or the day before. Both turn in are required, both the turnitin.com and the printed copy. Let me make sure that everything is Okay. Oh yes, write down what okay, just re read what's in the in the website. Write down in the paper both the prompt, prompt one, prompt two, and the title you're giving. And make sure that you're building up your discourse around the sources. Good. Uh, paper Cantica Acts. 
I wrote in the, in the Moodle web page that, uh, that we are reading, like, for instance, for today, Act, uh, Act 3. But was... Uh, here we go. No, we don't, here we don't go. I wrote it on the syllabus. Uh, wh was the Roman... Uh, uh, was a, a, a Plotus comedy divided into acts at all? Not by Plotus. Who divided the Plotus comedies into acts? And when? In the 1500s, Pius, Pius, an editor. Terence's comedies were divided into acts... In, this is in Duckworth as well. Um, were divided into acts uh, by... We already find this division in Donatus. Donatus is a commentator and grammarian of the late antiquity of the 4th century AD. Um, he says that Varro, V-A-R-R-O, so Donatus, these are all in Duckworth, but... That Varro, who is a late Republic erudite uh, grammarian, 1st century uh, BC, he divided Terence's comedies as well. Why are they divided into acts? I mean, why does somebody want, would somebody want to divide them into acts? Well, yes, to give, like I should do sometimes, give you a break and like make it false. No, this happens when it, the author does it in order to give the audience a break. But when it's a grammarian who does it, and he works on a written on a written copy of the comedy, which is not represented anymore, possibly. Why does he do it? You know what I'm saying? You don't say no. Well, if Plotus divides his uh, comedy into five acts, when the comedy is brought to the scene, there's a, an actual pause in the representation. But Donatus, for instance, lives in the fourth century A.D., and Pius, the the one who divides. Um, um, Plotus' comedies into acts, lives in the 1500s. So what Pius works on is a manuscript with those comedies. Mm -hmm. no? So they're not represented anymore. So the, why do you want to make them fit this pattern of the comedy divided into acts? What kind of comedy was divided into acts in antiquity? The Greek new comedy was divided into acts. And those acts, this is a, a, a characteristic of the Greek drama in general. Because the Greek, in the Greek drama, the action, the dialogues, were divided, were broken up by what? This famous characteristic of, of Greek drama. By choruses. By choruses. At a certain point, the chorus, which was a group of dancers and singers, used to come probably in the orchestra, so down, this is the stage, so down, they would dance and sing, sometimes even dialoguing with, making a dialogue with uh, one of the characters. And this was a sung interlude. Um, and this would divide the action, obviously, break up the action into parts. This wasn't there in Roman comedy. Uh, instead, what's, uh, so when a Roman comedian, um, dramatist, translates a Greek comedy, he takes the choruses away and he puts it transforms the thing which is said, so that part of the comedy, into dialogues or monologues. So there are no choruses. So there is no distinction in acts. And the grammarians that uh, divide Plotus' comedies into acts, or Ter Terence's comedies into acts, they just want those comedies to fit the Greek scheme. They want them to look more Greek, in a way. Uh, well, acts and servus. Servus? Oh, servus, yeah. Okay, let's go over the readings for today.
Okay, um, what's the role of Palestrio, the servant, in the play? Um, we know that he makes up a trick to deceive the hero's opponent, opponents, but how does he present himself? With which metaphors does he present his role? Kevin. It's a general who disposes his army, that's right. And? Yes, that's... That's right. So, what did you say? Map maker? Uh, like, map maker. Map, M-A-P? Yeah. Alright, that's right. But if you, somebody who creates... Okay, let me... Uh, sorry? Arch he says architect, and he speaks about the house he has to build. He speaks about... Uh, he talks about... Uh, uh, about army, about military metaphors, but who is a person who, do you remember that famous passage when he is thinking how he should arrange the thing, and another character is describing him thinking, with, sitting like this, mm. he is inventing, he is giving the roles to the other characters, he knows how the things are going to unfold, who is the one who, in, who makes this, who gives the roles, who creates the characters, who tells the author, yeah, the playwright himself. This, there is a large amount of scholarship or bibliography which elucubrates about this matter, about the, the servos, the role of the servos in Latin, in Plautus's comedy, which is different from the one in, new, in the so-called New Greek comedy, which was the model, because the servos here, the trickery making, is a sort of double of the playmaker himself. He is giving the roles, he is giving directions, he is instructing the authors, the, 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 the actors, to play the, word, the role, uh, the role uh, correctly. Uh, and he boasts him, he glorifies himself that way. Let's go over the readings for today, for instance. Um, page, uh, you know, the start of the start, let's start of uh, verse uh, 611, page 31. Shall we read it? Um, okay, would you be the servant? And I will read the first part. Let's read. So I am, who am I? So I'm Periplectominus. So I come into scene, he is the servant, he's telling me what to do. I say, here at your command. So. We couldn't do it better. Okay, who's Plesiklis? Have little males around. Plesiklis? Where are you, Plesiklis? Geoffrey? Um, uh, okay, so Robert. Oh my god, how could it happen to me? Where are you, Plesiklis? You're not male enough, but okay. okay. Well, let's do, let's do it with Robert as well. No, no, I, I think it's going to be him, but... Okay. Ready? Go. <laughs> That's the way you should be talking. Uh, I see. What troubles you? Speak up, my boy.
What's that? I like this. What's that? Do I seem so six feet under to you? Is it that so? Do I seem to be so senile, such a coughing candidate? After all, I'm barely 54 years old, not even that. I got perfect vision still, my hands are still quick, my legs are nimble. Maybe he's... Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm over. <laughs> okay, uh, what I wanted to show is, first of all, the troop thing, no? My troops are well set, etc. And he is giving orders to free men, which used to sound comic by that time. This excessive role of the servos is something that Plotus invents, something Plotus introduces in the, in the, in the plot. Also, here... Uh, quite boring and long discourse starts off boring to us, to me at least, uh, you know, about what is right, what is worth, or what is not for an old man. Then again, as I'm saying, uh, I think that here there is a, there is a trace of uh, the Greek comedy. Why? Let's start saying this. The scholars, the German scholars who invented modern classical philology in the 1800s, Uh, debated a lot about what in Plotine comedies was Plotine and what was not. You know that Plotus is, is, is doing what with Greek tragedies, with, with Greek comedies? But how does he build up a comedy for a ludus? He wakes up and he invents the character. Does he invent the characters? But does he invent the plot at all? Instead? Well, yes, but basically what I want to say is so easy that you're saying, no, this is not what he wants. He translates Greek, co Greek comedies, and he transforms things by put, make, but, mm, transforming some scenes, sewing together different pieces from different comedies sometimes, but not in this case. Um, yes, adding puns and uh, grotesque uh, elements which don't, don't really change the plot, etc. But there are points that are evidently plotine, and there are points that are evidently closer to the Greek comedy, as we know it. The problem is that we don't have the Greek originals, so we can, ha unless in some rare cases, we cannot really make a comparison between Plotus and his sources. So we assume that whenever these comedies make a point about some ethical discourse, they go theoretical, they go very romantic, etc. We assume that this is the Greek source. And whenever he goes scurril, vulgar, he may has people beating each other and insulting each other, well, that's vulgar, that's low, that's uh, Latin trash, that's Plotus. That was the ancient approach. Now it has changed quite slightly, uh, but in general this still is the way we look at it. Here, when this uh, point about what the duties of an old man are, we tend to think that this is the translation of the Greek comedy. When later we have the slaves fighting with each other, we tend to think that this is Plotus. Our general criterion has always been that whenever the plot goes on, when something happens that makes the plot go on, this belongs to the Greek original. Whenever something happens that doesn't make the plot go on, this doesn't. Um, Now, the role of periplectomenus, for instance, is debated here. And it's quite controversial because in comedy, what's the role of the old man normally? You know, the mask of the old man, this character? He has a precise role. Which one? Yes, he is ridiculous because being an old man, an age which is not suitable for love, for romantic affairs anymore, in Roman mentality, So you see there's always this sort of intermingling between Greek originals and Roman re-elaboration. 
An old man in Rome shouldn't love, shouldn't be romantic, shouldn't give gifts to a young lover. And so, and so he's ridiculous, he's mocked, and he's often tricked by somebody else. But in this case, we have a controversial old man. He is old, but he's helping the young lover. He is involved in the trick, but not in the role of the tricked, but in the role of the tricker. So there is some discussion going on, because this is culturally problematic. How can he be an old man involved in a love affair and still be a good man? Because he's a good character, he's not one of the evils, he's one of the good ones. And so I think that there are some parodistical effects. Uh, for instance, verse 640, even I still have a little, little loving left in me. Little, little, so which is a translation, a way to render, to render the, the leading pun. Uh, so he said he's being a little ridiculous playing the old man who still has uh, wit and still gold chases for girls, etc. And then he has a very problematic cultural role because he is a good citizen. He goes to the assembly, if you remember, but he doesn't want to get married. Okay, at verse 648, he is defending, defending himself. Uh, okay, page 33 at the beginning, he said, And I also know to shut my mouth when somebody else is talking. I'm no spitter, which gives us an idea of how the ancient uh, manners would have been. I'm no spitter, I'm no cuffer, and I'm not forever sneezing. I was born in Ephesus, where the comedy is set. Not, I'm not an Animulian. Animu Animula is uh, a village in Apulia. You know, Italy, southeast Italy, Apulia. This passage, for instance, is clearly a Greek adaptation. We don't know what was in the Greek, um, a Roman adaptation, because we don't know what was in, in the Greek original. We know that Apulia was considered a rural area in Italy, not in Greece. Okay, then, then we have a whole bunch of nasty uh, sexism going on. When he talks about why he didn't get married and why uh, he hates women, etc., uh, page 34... Periplectominus, his first. You silly boy, what do you spend for enemies or for a nasty wife, says Pans? What do you lay out for a guest, a real true friend of yours, is profit. Uh, so, and later on, 680 says, could, I could have led a wealthy wife of high position to the altar, but I wouldn't want to lead a barking dog into my house. And then he depicts the idea of the wife. Uh, comedy is a way, entertainment in, in general, is a good way to enter into the mentality and the culture of a, of a people, although it's not serious, it's just fun, as I said at the beginning. Because when we have fun is when we express sometimes our deeper convincements, the way we have fun. We couldn't have fun that way today, I hope. Although some misogyny is still going on, you know, comedians, uh, comedians and dialogues. But I saw dialogues in Comedy Central being the other way around. You know, there was this, this woman describing the typical boyfriend who doesn't clean the dishes, etc. Well, this was inconceivable in ancient Rome. You can make fun of women, but women do not make fun of men uh, in general. Although, and so we'll, he describes the idea of a good wife. Um, same page, between 680 and 690, 684. Periplectomus says, sure it's sweet to wed a good wife, if there is such a thing on earth. I'd be glad to marry someone who would turn to me and ask me, dearest husband, buy some wool. So it must be comic on the scene, or he must, of course, impersonate a, a, wom a woman's voice. Dearest husband, buy some wool so I can make, cloth make some clothing for you. 
first the tunic, soft and warm, and then uh, cloak for winter weather, so you won't be cold, etc., etc. So this is the idea of the woman La Nigera, who, who, wear, uh, who makes wool, how do you say, who waves, who spins wool. This is the typical uh, image of the Roman matron, of the Roman mother, uh, who works the, the, the wool at home, etc., uh, etc. Et Page 35, for instance, verse 700. Palaestrio, the servant, you know, in this dialogue, Palaestrio, if you remember, Palaestrio, Pleusicles and Periplectomenos play three different roles. And they discuss the matter of getting married, not getting married, from three different points of view. What's the point of view of Periplectomenos, the old man? What does he argue? What's his point? Yeah, right. He said that a bad woman would, a good woman, but there's no such thing as a good woman on heart. So he's still politically quite correct. And then Pleusicles and uh, Palaestri, you know? Pleusicles is a free man, so he's noble. Palaestri is not, he's a servant. They respond to him in different ways. How? Let's look at it again. Look. Verse 701, Palaestrio says that he's the servant, no, he's, he's like in Futurama, he's like Bender, and so he says, all the gods have, so he says, I don't want to spend my money, etc. And the servant says, all the gods have blessed you, for by Hercules, if you, let go, or if you let go of freedom just for a second, it's no easy thing to get it back. So he's saying, you should be free, you should be free to do, I don't know, to enjoy life, basically, this is his point, okay? Pleusicles, who's free, who's Athenian, who's noble, tells him, don't you think it's noble for a man of wealth and high estates to bring up children as a sort of monument to his good name? So what is the different response of these two characters to this controversial discourse? Comic, but controversial. That's right. I hadn't thought of it. Thank you. That's right. And <laughs> what I wanted to say is, in general, that he is uh, underlying the the vulgar elements of it. I mean, he's he agrees with this point of view because he's a hedonistic point of view, and that so basically he endorses it. But the, he, he's not problematic ideologically. You know, he says you're right. You should enjoy life. What does the free boy say? What does Pleusicles say instead? Mm-hmm, exactly. So, if there is a moral discussion of high profile, this is between the old man, Periplectomenus, and Pleusicles, whereas the role of the, of the servant is to respond in a different way. This is another way how a moral matter is problematized and visualized in, in comedy. Um, I find it very interesting that one of the, way, one of the literary expressions through which philosophy finds a way to be expressed in words is dialogue, because philosophy tends to be different things in the ancient world. The origins of ancient Greek philosophy is sacral, sacral, sacralized. Um, people like uh, Empedocles from Agrigento, the city where I come from, was a sort of ancient uh, wise, an ancient uh, uh, philosopher and prophet in a way. And he writes his philosophy, how? Do you know what, how he writes down his works? In prose or in verse? He, pres- he, the, he writes that in verse. 
in hexametric verse that should be learned by heart. So he states his reality, his idea, his uh, opinion in an almost oral society in a sacred and solemn way. Plato, later on, who has a much more problematic and mature philosophy and dialectic philosophy, how does he write his philosophy? With, through dialogues. Why? And dialogue is a very popular way to write down philosophy until the modern age, until the Industrial Revolution, which is inter in the um, scientific revolution, I would say, which is interestingly enough, interesting enough. Dialogue is a problematic fashion. You have two different characters debating a problem from two different points of view. That's why philosophy goes into a dramatic force form of dialogue. And the te theater is so easy to pick up to pick up philosophical or moralistic questions, moralistic discussions. And uh, actually Euripides, for instance, if you think of Euripides in Greece, he is one of the author, authors through which we see more clearly the, uh, the torment, the, 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 new, the revolution which is going on in, in Athens, by that, in classical Athens, about new ethical problems which are being posed in that time. A reflection, if we want, of Plato, of Socrates, of their, of their revolution in philosophy, of the sophists in Athens. We, ha we use, I repeat this as well, as a way to, to assess the impact that the philosophical and moral um, discussion and, and arguments um, and um, dialect, dialect, um, dialectic uh, progress of philosophy in that time has on uh, the common people because this is a literary form which is widespread and which has and presents reflections, reflects and uh, traces of these philosophical thoughts, contemporary philosophical thoughts. Although this is not maybe a big example because they're making fun of each other. And now it's time to go. Well, I'll see you on Monday. Thank you. Have a nice weekend.